to join with me in prayer? Father, um, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we can sing your goodness, that we can pray according to your goodness, that we can read your word, and Lord, that we can even hear your word sung. But we also thank you that we can hear your word proclaimed and announced and heralded as it is good news, news of events that have happened in which you have acted to save us. And Lord, as your word is heralded and proclaimed right now, Lord, I pray you'd bless it. Keep me faithful. And Lord, I pray that we as a church would receive your word as the voice of our good shepherd, that we would submit to it, we would love it. And Lord, through it, we would get to know the unfathomable riches of your love for your bride. And I pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if you do have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Ruth, the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Ruth, chapter 4. And as you are turning there, I want to remind you or actually draw your attention to something here. Actually, uh, the book, in the book of Ruth, the idea of a name is actually something very important. There's, there's lots of themes in the book of Ruth that are so profound and they catch you. Things like the Redeemer, that God has given a kinsman Redeemer to this family. Also, we saw the providence of God on full display, how he is in control over all things. And no one needs to know what's going on other than the fact that he is bringing them a king. He's bringing them King David. And they don't even know that they need this king. They don't even know who he's going to be. They don't know how he's going to bring it. But here he is providing them this king through the events of the book of Ruth. The providence of God is on full display. We also saw the kinsman redeemer and how Christ is our kinsman redeemer and how Boaz demonstrates what a good and godly kinsman redeemer would be. But we also see this idea of names, and they feature very large in the book of Ruth. Remember when Naomi comes back from the land of Moab? Remember she walks in, and remember, what what does Naomi's name mean? Naomi's name means pleasant or sweet. And she's called this name as she walks into Bethlehem and she challenges those people who are calling her that. And they say, do not, she says, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara because I am not sweet or pleasant, but God has dealt bitterly with me. Names are such a big deal in here. And there are three names that are going to feature large in this next portion that we're going to be reading, this next portion of the life of Ruth. And here are the three names. These names are the two redeemers and the name of Elimelech. Those two redeemers and Elimelech. Uh, First of all, Elimelech's name was in danger of being removed from the land of God's people and promise. So at what point, Elimelech would have been able to stand on this land and he would have been able to think, this land is a gift to my family from the Lord and it will be forever. This is my family's land. We didn't earn it. The Lord gave it to us as an undeserved gift. This is our inheritance from the Lord. God treated Israel different than any other nation in this regard in giving them this inheritance. But Elimelech had left that land because of poverty. And he died when, when then, sorry, and he died. And then his children died without having children And so Elimelech's name, his family's name, was now in danger of being blotted out from the people of God. Inheritance lost. 
Elimelech's name lost. But then there's also the name of the first redeemer. And we learned about him in the last passage we read. Remember this? Boaz desires to redeem the name of Elimelech. He, re- he, he desires to redeem Ruth. But there is a man with a right to be the redeemer first. This man is never named in these events. Not only that, but the author and apparently Boaz, they awkwardly avoid this man's name. In the first verse, the phrase he uses to call him, and we're going to read that very shortly, it actually is, some, is a Hebrew expression that means something like so-and-so. No name. This man, we'll see, refuses to redeem Ruth. And therefore, Elimelech's name. And he does so in order to protect his own name, his own inheritance. And ironically, it's his name that ends up vanishing. He clung to this name in order to hold on to it. And his name is the one that vanishes. Boaz took from his own inheritance, from his own name, you could say, to redeem Elimelech and to redeem Ruth. His is the name, though, that actually resounds throughout history, exalted by God and his word as the Redeemer. And I want this to shape our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself by, by becoming a man, taking on flesh, taking on the form of a servant, the name servant, and then even, going even further than that, taking on the name and inheritance of sinners. And what was that? The name of sin. He became sin on the cross, cursed. And how did God view that? That Christ did not cling to that. God views that as glorious the most glorious thing anyone has ever done. And so Christ is then bestowed with the name above every name because he didn't grasp onto what was his, but he gave himself up to redeem the bride whom he loved. Watch for this idea of the redemption of Elimelech's name, that unnamed man's refusal to redeem the name in fear of losing his own, and Boaz's happiness to take from his, to redeem the name of Elimelech. So now let's get to reading here our passage. And and, uh, we're going to see this in Ruth chapter 4. We're going to read the first four verses. Ruth chapter 4, first four verses. Now, Now, Boaz has gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and sat and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So I want this to show us our first point, which is this. The love of the Redeemer proven in court. We saw in the last passage 
that Boaz loves Ruth. He has affection for her. She has found favor in his sight. He swears that he loves her. He swears that he will redeem her. And now we get to see him step into court. There's been, made, there's been much noise made in the last number of years to pit the love of God against the justice of God. So there are those who say that believing that God redeems people because of love, it, that automatically means that you have to eliminate all of the legal or law aspects of salvation, things like punishment. Why do you keep talking about the cross and legal punishment? The cross is an act of love. Why do you keep talking about salvation in terms that remind me of somebody going to a heartless, cold courtroom? Now, I doubt that Ruth would have stood for that kind of nonsense. Ruth is not saying, Boaz, forget about court. Forget about doing those legal things. You said you love me. You said I'm redeemed. You said my debt is paid. Isn't that enough? Ruth would have stood for none of that nonsense. This was a redemption provided for her by the Lord, the God of Israel. And it was being provided by a redeemer given to her by the Lord whose heart and eye and affection that she had received, it was a redemption motivated by love, but which she could have rejoiced at because it was proven in court. It's not less loving and romantic and affectionate because of the court. It is sweeter. So I wonder if you actually noticed that court language there. Boaz assembles an official legal court. He, he actually gets, gets 10 elders, which actually would have been more than enough legally. And these are those people who are tasked with making judgments, ruling legally. There were significant problems for Elimelech's family. They were real problems. They weren't just problems of feelings or problems of imaginations or worry. These problems simply couldn't go away just because somebody who loved them said, don't worry about it. These were actually legal problems. They were problems which related to justice. See, who owns a property is a legal matter. It's a matter of justice. Who owes a debt, that's a legal matter. It's actually a matter of justice. Who receives your possessions when you die is a legal matter. It's also a matter of justice. So if I fail to pay a debt, it's a real problem. Not simply a problem of a bad feeling or the problem is that I'm embarrassed because I failed to pay a debt. It's a real problem. It's both, but it is certainly a real problem. So if I've been entrusted with a fair family heirloom or a family inheritance to keep it on behalf of my whole family and I squander it or I sell it to buy drugs or to pay off a gambling debt, that's a real problem. It's not just a shame. It's a matter that if it were to be redeemed, that problem, it actually would have to be redeemed in a just way. My family couldn't just go back and steal that stuff from the person who I sold it to. It must be redeemed in a just way. Boaz was motivated by love and affection to redeem Ruth and all of Elimelech's family. He wasn't motivated by the law, but his motivation of love and favor meant that he would meet the requirements of the law in order to actually and really and fully redeem Ruth and her family. No matter how great his love was, he couldn't just simply say, 
babe, you're redeemed. Come, come and live on this land that belongs to your family. He couldn't do that without actually paying for it. It might have made for a very lovely moment in a movie, but it would have made for a very insecure existence for Ruth and Naomi living on land they had no real claim to, wondering when Boaz or someone else would change their minds and kick them off. And this is exactly how redemption works in God's sight. It's no, no surprise because God built that same system of redemption in Israel. Because we also see this in the redemption work by Jesus Christ. It was God's love which compelled him to provide us with Christ. That is extremely clear in many passages, but very clear in John chapter 3. It was for God so loved that he gave. God loved the church before he saved her. He loved her before her debt was paid. He loved her before her sins were covered. He loved her before he redeemed her. It was his love which prompted him to redeem the church from sin and death and damnation. All humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as we read in Romans. All have broken his law and all stand condemned. And out of that mass of humanity, the Lord set his affection on a people and committed himself in love to redeem that people. However, God is not a wicked judge. God actually cares about justice. He hates sin and injustice. He swears he will not leave the guilty unpunished. He must, out of his own character, not because some other outside law demands it of him, he must, out of his own character, insist that justice be done. That means that God, even though he's motivated by love, cannot simply redeem people just by loving them. He must do something to deal with their guilt with their legal peril. Because you are and I am by nature guilty. We deserve the wrath of God. And his justice demands that our sin be paid for. These are not merely problems of feelings and emotion. These are real problems of sin and guilt and justice. God's love for his church, his elected bride, his love for the church doesn't mean he can just ignore sin and debt and justice. This is essentially what false religions teach, isn't it? They essentially teach that there is some way which you can be God's favorites. And that once that happens, he will simply forgive your sin. He will let it slide. He'll make it not count. You could butter him up. There's some way that you can become his people that he has special favor for, and so then he'll just ignore your sin. Islam, for instance, does this, as do virtually every other religion. But God does not show partiality as a judge. He swears that in his word. So imagine a judge who, when a person comes into his courtroom who, he, who isn't one of his family members, he gives them justice. And then imagine a man, that same judge, who a family member walks in who he loves, and then he says, you know what? No justice. You don't forget about it. You're not guilty. What would we call that man? We would call that man an unjust, wicked judge. And he couldn't simply claim somehow that love makes it okay. 
a popular American preacher, a false teacher, not long ago said something like, God broke the law to save you. It's blasphemy. Brothers and sisters, if God could deny his own character, his own justice, then we're actually in worse shape because then even his promises are now sand. Even the ones we like because he's now a liar. He's a God of injustice. He wouldn't be God. He'd actually just be a very big version of us. And so I, I want you to notice how Boaz, as great as his affection and favor is for Ruth, he fulfills the law's demands. We, we last left them right at the threshing floor, and he says, he swears he's going to redeem her, and they says, but there's a matter that I must deal with first. There is a redeemer nearer than I. We have to do this properly. He fulfills the law's demands. He gives opportunity to redeem to the other redeemer. He does this not privately in his heart. By becoming her redeemer, he legally and officially fulfilling justice. Think of that sandal exchange we're going to watch later on. He fulfills justice. It was official. He's going to legally buy the land on behalf of Elimelech. So no one could accuse him of avoiding justice to make the deal not count. Did you notice that Boaz was eager to do this legally, but also in front of witnesses? You see here, he's assembling the elders of the people, so you've got a legal court there, but then it also looks like you've got a whole bunch of people also gathered as witnesses. You get this impression that Boaz wants everybody to see this, as many people as possible. I want lots of witnesses for this. We spoke last week about the swearing and oaths of God. We saw how Boaz, in keeping with the character of God and the law of God, he, God, he swears to be Ruth's redeemer. He was eager to make it official to legally redeem Ruth, but to do so in the presence of many witnesses. And this is exactly the way that the Lord, our God, our redeemer, loves to redeem his people. He doesn't work redemption in a cave outside the view of witnesses and then saying, say, telling some people, by the way, this happened, just trust me, this happened. See, when the Lord redeemed Israel from Egypt, from slavery, he did so extremely publicly. The whole ancient world was watching. It wasn't some secret message that they gave to Moses, by the way, just tell the people, I'm their redeemer. It wasn't like that at all. The whole ancient world was watching. Pharaoh knew what was happening, and he was furious. He knew that Yahweh was going to or going to try to redeem his people and to do it publicly. The people of Canaan heard about the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, long before Israel ever came up to their border. Remember how when they, they, the, the spies come into Canaan and they're met by that prostitute, by Rahab? She says, we've all heard. And the men of my town can barely stand up. They're so afraid. And yet they fought against the Lord. God is a God of public redemption in front of many witnesses. This is his M.O. He's not a God of secret messages. He's a God who redeems people in human history in front of many witnesses with redemptions which could be witnessed. He made his covenant publicly with Israel on Mount Sinai. Very publicly. 
all of Israel witnessed God's promises. And then when he sent his people into exile in Babylon, he publicly promised them in front of many witnesses, put it on paper before it happened, that he would bring them back. And even said how many years later he would bring them back. And then when that time came, he publicly in front of many witnesses brought them back to be very clear that they were redeemed and that he, the Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the one who was redeeming them. And then when the fullness of time had come, the Lord, the God of Israel, the Son of God, God the Son, the Redeemer of Israel became the kinsman Redeemer of Israel by taking on flesh, becoming a man with skin that you could see, you could witness, you could touch, you could hear his voice, you could witness him, the Redeemer of Israel. God did not simply declare from heaven that his people's sins had been forgiven. That he simply just let go of their sin because of love. He came to earth and God worked their redemption very publicly in front of many, many witnesses. He didn't work redemption in a corner. Jesus worked his miracles in front of great crowds so that the miracles which attributed to Christ are not a collection of People saying, well, I was alone with him and he did this. Or I was alone with him and he did these things very much in the open. No, the open way that Christ worked his miracles was testifying in front of many witnesses his true identity. The Lord God of Israel who is their redeemer. So much so that at the end of his life, no one was denying, even his enemies, no one was denying that he was a miracle worker. His enemies, the elders of God's people in particular, they simply questioned the source of his miraculous power. It must be from Satan, they said. His life was very much on display in his public ministry for three years at the age of 30. And at his trial before his execution, when the elders of the people sought to further corrupt his trial by luring false witnesses, they couldn't find any legitimate accusers to point out his sin. Because he had none, even though they were very motivated to find out it was there. And so here, at Jesus' trial, the elders of God's people themselves served as witnesses to the redemption which God had worked. Christ redeemed his people with his perfect life, which was witnessed by many. Christ redeemed his people with his, with his death on a cross, which was also witnessed by many. And when Christ rose from the dead on the third day, he remained on earth for 40 days to establish a testimony, to establish a witness, witnesses, evidence that he had paid the price of redemption. His people were redeemed. Peter, in his speech at Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' death, he called all of Israel as witnesses to the redemption which God worked so publicly in Christ. This is in Acts chapter 2. Listen to this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, that's, that's courtroom language, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, 
For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You, made, you have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter's bringing the dead prophets to bear witness about Christ. Then he continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, be, he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Listen to this. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And listen now, he closes this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's God's MO. Redemption in front of many witnesses. So that those who were redeemed may know for certain that they are redeemed. Boaz's redemption of Ruth was motivated by love. There can be no doubt about it. But that love didn't cause Boaz to ignore the court, but to run to the court to undoubtedly and surely and publicly and officially redeem that dear woman. The kinsman redeemer of the whole household of God's love was not less than Boaz, but greater. His redemption of his people was not less public. It was more public. And this is for our certainty. Brothers and sisters, if Christ is your redeemer, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ Jesus alone, you can know for certain that you are surely redeemed. God doesn't, God's love doesn't skirt the law or break the law. It doesn't avoid witnesses, but it seeks them out. If Christ was a fraud, he lived in such a way that we would know it. If Christ was not the Messiah, God worked our redemption in such a way that we would know it because he did it in human history in, front of, in public in front of many witnesses. His love for his bride was proven in court, not evading legal demands, not ignoring the debt of sin of his bride, not ignoring that his bride owed God a debt of obedience to his laws, which she hadn't kept. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the fashion, the way that your Lord redeemed you. Your redemption is not now based on how sure you are, not on how righteous you are, not on how great your confidence is, but on whether Christ truly did die on the cross and was raised from the dead. And God provided many witnesses, doing it in public fashion, making a spectacle of it for your assurance brings us to our second point, 
because we're getting very much ahead of ourselves, aren't we? Boaz has so far only assembled the court. We basically have all rise has happened. He's, he's not yet redeemed her. So to make sure that Ruth is certainly redeemed and her redemption is official, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't avoid the law, he fulfills it. And so he now gives this privilege to this man, this responsibility. And the man has agreed to redeem the land. I will do it, he says. To purchase that land for the family, securing it for the family, it's sort of back in the family line. He's a close enough relative that it counts as if the family now owns it. The land is redeemed. But there's a catch. It's actually a significant cost, and it was a greater cost than simply buying the land. Let's read on here. Ruth chapter 4, we're going to continue now from verse 5, and we're going to read... Uh, we're we're going to read to verse. Uh, we're going to read to the end here of uh, verse twelve. Ruth four verse five. Then Boaz says, "The day you buy the field from the, the hand of Naomi, you are also you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance." Then the redeemer said, "I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance." Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to, to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and to uh, and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and all that and, and, and to Malon. And also Ruth the Moabite, the, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give to you by this young woman. Now she's redeemed. So, the near redeemer was willing to buy the property. But there was a greater cost. The man may not have realized it, but Boaz actually reminds him of it. Elimelech was left without an heir, and his name would be blotted out, as we've seen, erased from Israel. No one to enjoy the inheritance on behalf of his family. To redeem the land, Ruth, Malon's widow, would also need to be redeemed. And this would impair the man's inheritance. And why it would Im impair that man's inheritance, there's, there's several reasons why that could be. We're not exactly told why. But ultimately, the land and the son born to him would not count toward his own inheritance. Okay? So he's redeeming Elimelech's inheritance and it won't count as his. But now also, we have the matter of a child. He'd be standing in the place of the dead men. 
what he would do as a redeemer would count for them. It actually wouldn't count for him. His work and payment would count as if they were Malons or Elimelechs. It was now much more than owning and being responsible for more land. He could have handled just having more land because he could sort of take the profit off that land maybe and, and, and cover those costs. But actually, it could have been that paying to release Naomi's land would cost him all that he owned. And that would have been all right if he himself were able to pass that on to his kids. But marrying Ruth would mean that it wouldn't count as his land. It would go to their firstborn son, who would also count as Malon's son. It's a very confusing thing. But essentially, it would mean that he might have nothing to pass on to his children. And he was worried that he might not have anything to pass on to his children. That perhaps his name wouldn't survive in Israel. Because he would be doing everything he would be doing with this land, it would count for Malon's name. He's essentially standing in the dead man's place. Either way, he's unwilling to give up his own inheritance in order to redeem the inheritance of Elimelech, Naomi, and Ruth. So there was a great cost. Boaz was very willing to pay that great cost. He makes it official. The sandal ceremony sealed the deal legally in the sight of the court. He paid the cost to redeem the land which Elimelech lost. He paid the cost to redeem Ruth out of poverty in full. And I wonder if you notice the way he did it so that no one would be able to claim later on that he hadn't done it. That no one would be able to forget that he had done it. He essentially calls for any objections. He says, essentially, speak now or forever hold your peace. He basically says, you are witnesses, aren't you? And they reply, we are witnesses. The cost of their redemption needed to be fully paid. Elimelech's loss couldn't simply be erased because of love. It was an actual loss. It required an actual redemption. That is how God set up redeemers in Israel. So that when a kinsman redeemer of the whole of God's chosen people would come, we would expect nothing less. Any debt or loss that we have incurred, he was going to truly redeem. Not simply wave a magic wand and say, forgiven. He would actually pay the cost. He would pay the wages. And what a debt have we incurred? We've broken God's laws. We've stored up wrath and punishment for the day of judgment. It was God's rich and deep love which prompted him to send us a redeemer, to redeem us from sin and death and wrath and hell. But love itself couldn't cancel that debt. It couldn't erase that punishment. And the way that Boaz, the redeemer of Elimelech's family, actually stood in for Elimelech himself. So that he, what he would do is actually credited to Elimelech's account. Did you see that? What Boaz does is now going to be credited to Elimelech's account. It would count as if Elimelech himself had done these things. So too, our Redeemer would have to stand in our place to perform things that we owed God. 
He'd have to stand or actually hang in our place to pay the price of redemption, which was his very life. The wages of sin, says the word of God, is death. He would have to face death in our place. All wrath and punishment and hell from God, which we have earned by our sin, would then have to be received by him in our place. God couldn't simply deny our punishment, but he could provide a kinsman redeemer to stand in for us when the punishment was being administered. And that is what Christ did in our place on the cross. And in Christ's day, when a person incurred a debt, there would have been a written record of that debt to ensure that the debt was paid and that the debtor didn't forget what they actually owed. And when that debt was finally paid, the words, it is finished, were written across it so that no one would ever be able to hold that debt against the individual again. Remember that those were the words that Christ cried out on the cross after bearing the wrath of God on on the cross for our sins, he cried out, it is finished in front of many witnesses. Friends, God will not, he can't deny his own justice. He can't deny himself. He will not let sin go unpunished. There is a record of your sin, of breaking of God's law in heart, in mind, in word, in action, And there is no way to unsin a sin. Even by doing good things. So not murdering three people is not a way to unmurder three people you murdered the day before. There is no wiping out your record without actually being punished for it. But if the Lord would count our iniquity against us, we could not stand. But the Lord provided a kinsman redeemer to stand in our place and to receive the curse of God in your place. If you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus alone, you will bear your own curse and punishment for your sin. But brothers and sisters, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. No one could ever come up to Ruth or Naomi and say that their debts had not been paid. Boaz paid them in full in front of many witnesses according to the letter of the law. No one could walk up to the first child and deny that he was the rightful heir of Elimelech, that he was the one to inherit all of the family's goods. He didn't bypass the law's demands. He fulfilled them in the sight of many witnesses. So so Christ did with the record of God's law against you and I. So why is this a good thing? Why do I keep repeating this? It means that as you approach the end of your life, which may be as a young man or woman, or an old man or woman, you may be faced with doubts and fears about how you will fare when you stand before God's judgment. And you may look at the law of God and it may expose your guilt as you look at your life. It'll show the ways you've sinned against God. 
and you may feel it testifies against your eternal life and place with God in heaven as his child, but it doesn't. The law does not testify against you if you belong to Christ. It is popular now to say that God's love prompted Christ to die as a demonstration that God loves you so much that even if we killed him, he wouldn't punish us. But no one who teaches that also believes that Scripture is without error. So that is one reason to reject a false teaching, but it also, another good reason to reject that false teaching is it robs the church of the beautiful gift of assurance which Christ intends to give his dearly beloved bride, his church, because he knows we need the gift of assurance. See, if the law of God was just ignored, if God said, don't worry about it, I love you, then the law could always come up as a witness against you. Somebody could always bring up the law against you. The law could always point out your sin, and you'd wonder, well, which is it that God's going to honor? Is he going to honor his love, or is he going to honor his justice? I don't know which one. Well, he lied about his justice. Maybe he's going to lie about his love. You'd never know. The law of God would testify against your eternal life. But by bearing your sin and condemnation on the cross, according to the law, and in front of many witnesses, Christ was eliminating the law's ability to ever testify against his beloved. For the law to scream out and say, Derek deserves wrath and hell. And Christ could say, yes. And I loved him and stood in his place and took it. His love was paid, his, his love was proven in court, paying for our redemption in full. This is underlined in Colossians 2 in so many places, but Colossians 2 verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. Oh, just setting aside didn't matter. No, it says, this he set aside. How did he do that? By nailing it to the cross. By taking it. He's not just purchased forgiveness for you. If your faith is in him, he's also purchased assurance for you. So friends, if you've not repented and trusted in Christ, your debt is not paid. And the wrath of God hangs over you. And the law actually cries out as a witness against you. And God's law is good. It perfectly reveals his character and heart, and he will not deny his law. He will not deny what his law testifies. But thanks be to God, his law testifies that Christ was perfect and that he took our punishment on the cross. There is a Redeemer who was qualified to stand in our place the way that Boaz was qualified to stand in Elimelech's place and to do things which legally counted as if Elimelech had done them. And not only was Christ qualified to do this, but his love was so great that it drove him to court 
to not only demonstrate that love, but to act on it to fully redeem you and cancel the debt which the law cried out accurately against you as a witness. Brothers and sisters, in front of many witnesses, the law of God being one of those witnesses, the Lord redeemed you so that you may know for certain that you are redeemed and that your debt is paid, new life secured. God didn't break the law for you. He kept it. He didn't deny justice to save you. He suffered judgment for you. So there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can bring a charge against the bride elect of Christ? God is the one who justifies. So rest and rejoice in the forgiveness of your sins worked by the love of God on the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that our gift is not, our, our salvation is not just a mere sentiment. It's not just words of forgiveness. But Lord, it is you paying for our sins on the cross. Lord, we're grateful for the love that you showed, but also for the rock-solid perfect assurance which that also gives us. That you will not deny your love, and we know this because you will also not deny your justice. And we are grateful for the goodness of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who rejoices in the love of God, demonstrated in the sacrifice of Christ Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. Lord, I pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.